Okay, we see Jesus, increment 65, and we want to remind you that you did not miss the communion service, the remote communion service from our last message, because it's available on the DVD and on the online, of course, in every format. So you can still participate in that whenever and wherever, and not only once but twice if you want. So we're going to begin with a word of prayer, and we'll be praying this prayer corporately, hopefully on Wednesday night too. Father, we pray that you'll unveil the eyes of our heart, that we might see marvelous things in your word, and we pray this in the name of the sum of all the wonders of your word, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In old books especially, there's a section in the back called errata, E-R-R-A-T-A. It means errors. And it takes note of some of the errors of the manuscript in the book. And I want to do begin with an errata this morning or this evening or wherever you're listening and in it's from increment 64 i said in psalm 81 6 and 7 of the septuagint or psalm 82 6 and 7 of your english bibles i said that that had angels in the septuagint where the hebrew text had gods or elohim and that is incorrect in fact the Hebrew text does have gods, theoi, and so does the Greek text, or the Hebrew text has Elohim, the Greek text has theoi. It says ego epa theoi. But in Psalm 97 7, which is the Septuagint of 96 7, quoted in Hebrews 1 6, the Hebrew text has worship him, all you gods. Elohim, while the Greek text has, worship him all you angels, angeloi. The point is that the subordination of the gods to Yahweh in the Old Testament corresponds to the subordination of angels to Jesus in the New Testament, especially in future world where they already worship him. Now, you may say, we got the point, so it doesn't matter. But I say, to me, it matters. And so all the details of the word I want to get correct and I want to get right. Plus, some of you who are astute students might have picked up on that error. For example, Jeff Stewart, Pastor Jeff Stewart. I'm sure you caught it. All right, now we're entering into Hebrews 3.1, where a verse that we looked at in the past is still holding court over the text, and we'll see that in a moment. First of all, I want to note that Moses, who's about to be compared with our Lord Jesus in Hebrews 3, he was called Moses the man of God in Deuteronomy 33.1. Samuel, the prophet of the famous books, First and Second Samuel, also known as First and Second reigns. Samuel was also called a man of God, and it said that he was highly respected and that everything he says proves true. So that must mean he's a prophet. First Samuel 1, 
or we call it reigns in the Septuagint. 9.6, First Samuel 9.7, 9.8, And he's also called a seer and a prophet, First Samuel 9.9 and 9.11. It says that God spoke in his ear, First Samuel 9.15, and spoke directly to him in 9.17. Samuel was indeed a seer, and he told Saul everything that was in Saul's heart. So he knew it was in the hearts of people in 919, and he revealed the word of God to him in 1 Samuel 927. So 1 Kings, which is also third reigns in the Septuagint, chapter 13 speaks of an unnamed man of God, an anonymous Man, simply called a man of God. He came by the word of the Lord or under the command of the Lord to, from Judah to Bethel, it says, where it says he cried out against the altar and he prophesied the birth of King Josiah who would do right by God. Signs were done through this man of God, this anonymous man of God including the restoration of the hand of Jeroboam, which had withered because he had stretched it out to command that the man of God be arrested. Imagine the king commanding and stretching forth his hand that this prophet, this unnamed man of God, would be arrested and immediately his hand withered. But in keeping with the mercy of God, the same prophet prayed for the King Jeroboam and his hand was restored. Kind of reminds us of what Jesus did in the synagogue in Mark chapter 3. But in 1 Samuel 2.27, also known as 1 Reigns 2.27, an unnamed, again, anonymous man of God came to Eli, the high priest at the time, and he prophesied against Eli and his sons. Eli, the archpriest, and his sons, which would be the house of Eli. Speaking for God, the man of God began by saying, this is what the Lord says. Now, this is 1 Samuel 2.27, and we'll jump right into 2.35, which is still holding court in Hebrews. This is what the Lord says. I plainly revealed myself to the house of your father or your ancestor when they were in Egypt and slaves to the house of Pharaoh. And therefore, this man of God prefaces his message to Eli with God speaking through him, saying, I revealed myself to your ancestor. He's speaking there of Aaron, the first archpriest of Israel when Israel was still in Egypt and slaves to the house of Pharaoh. Now, this is interesting because Aaron, who's also not mentioned by name here, but is certainly referred to, is going to be the subject later on in Hebrews as he's compared with Jesus, the archpriest forever. The father, therefore, or ancestor of Eli, mentioned by the unnamed man of God in 1 Samuel 2.27, is his priestly forebear, Aaron, 
who will be the subject later on in Hebrews. So we anticipate that. Also, Moses will be the subject in Hebrews. We are anticipating that, which will be called an auxasis, a favorable comparison coming up. So remember what the man of God prophesied in 1 Samuel, or 1 Reigns 2.35. We mentioned that already in messages previous to this. He says and prophesies in the same prophecy to Eli, and I will raise up for myself, speaking for Yahweh, a faithful priest. This is the verse or the prophecy that's still, in a sense, holding court over our passage in Hebrews. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, and everything that is in my heart he will do, and I will make for him a faithful house, also the subject of Hebrews 3, especially verse 6, and he will go in the authority of my Christ all the days. So the prophecy was of a faithful priest that Yahweh would raise up, a word for resurrection, and a faithful house that Yahweh will make for him. So the faithfulness of Jesus, the archpriest of our confession, as he's called, the son and the builder of the house, is the subject of Hebrews 3.1 and following, that is 3.1 and onward. 1 Samuel, or 1 Reigns 2.35, is still holding court over this passage. I'll say it one more time. 1 Samuel 2.35 still is in mind as we go on to Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3 reads this way, and I'm going to do kind of a classic format of exegesis on this passage today in which you will be instructed on eight things, eight things from this exegetical study of Hebrews 3.1. It reads like this, Therefore, sanctified siblings, participants in a heavenly calling, carefully consider the apostle and archpriest of what we acknowledge as reality, Jesus. First, the addressees are called sanctified siblings, holy brothers and sisters, another way of putting it. This looks back to Hebrews 2.10 to 13, where sanctified and siblings are descriptive of the many sons and daughters that are being brought to glory. Let's read it, Hebrews 2.10 to 13. For in the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, because of whom and through whom all things exist, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, that is, complete through suffering for both the sanctifier and the sanctified sanctified brothers and sisters here are all of one because of which he that's Jesus the sanctifier is not ashamed to call them the sanctified brothers and sisters his siblings saying I will proclaim your name father to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation I will sing hymns to you. And again, 
I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God has given me. These are all references to the many sons and daughters or to the sanctified siblings of Hebrews 3.1. That's the first point. Second thing. Second, the word for participants or partakers here in partakers of a heavenly calling should also be considered in any exegesis. It is the Greek plural noun metakoi, M-E-T-O-C-H-O-I, you'll see it in print, a word that is deployed five times in Hebrews, and that's vital. Hebrews 1.9, where we see it in a quotation from Psalm 44 from the Septuagint. We have it here in 3.1, and again in 3.14, and still again in 6.4, and one more time in 12.8. Metakoi. It denotes a sharing or participating in something, and participation is a major theme throughout all of the New Testament. It can indicate those who are partners in an enterprise or endeavor, like the disciples of Jesus who were said to be companions or partners in a fishing enterprise, something like you see on TV shows like Wicked Tuna or The Deadliest Catch brothers or partners in a fishing enterprise. The word was already used in Hebrews 1.9 in a quotation of Psalm 45.7, Septuagint 44.8, about the Messiah who is called God by God and who is said to be anointed by God with a celebratory anointing oil of gladness instead of his companions, metakoi. In that case, in context, the companions are arguably angels. It is significant that this word is found here, 3.1, and 3.14. So it kind of marks a subsection, that theme, metakoi. In 3.14, it indicates, therefore, a theme. Partners in a heavenly calling, 3.1, corresponds to companions of Christ in 3.14. We are partakers or sharers in a heavenly calling, and as such, we are to press on, forward and upward. If you compare this to Philippians 3.11 to 14, and I think it's worthy of being compared to that passage. In fact, maybe even necessary to compare this passage with Philippians 3.11 to 14. There's a lot of commonality between Paul and this PT. So we are to press on. Onward and upward, as it says, toward the goal of being companions with Christ, which we are if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. And that's what 3.14 says. We'll be explaining what that means down the road. Third thing. Being brought to glory means that we are partakers or partners in a heavenly calling. Being brought to glory, then, is akin to being called to heaven. This heavenly calling can be compared to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 11 to 14. So the second and third things are very much related. The second thing 
defines the word participants or partakers. The third likens Hebrews 3.1 to Philippians 3.11-14. The fourth thing, the exhortation is brought forth with the verb katanoeo. Katanoeo, K-A-T-A-N-O-E, long O. We'll see that in print. A.T. Robertson, in his word pictures on Hebrews 3.1, says that it's the aorist active imperative of katanoeo, so it is an imperative of urgent command, and it's from an old compound verb in the Greek, kata, K-A-T-A, plus nous, N-O-U-S, which means mind. So the word means to put the mind down on a thing, to fix the mind on, as in Matthew 7, 3 and Luke 12, 24. What comes to mind in my mind is Isaiah 26, 3, one of the translations of which says, he whose mind is stayed on Christ is kept in perfect peace. Despite the situations, despite the social ostracisms that people are going through in this case, the mind stayed on Christ is kept in perfect peace. In the Septuagint of Exodus 33.8, and this is kind of an unusual way to proceed, but I don't want to just go by the commentaries, even though I'm reading four of them, or five or six, actually, of them. In the Septuagint of Exodus 33.8, though, we have the following. And this is from the NETS translation. It says, And when Moises, which is, of course, Moses, would go into the tent, all the people stood watching, each one at the doors of his tent, and they would pay attention. And in the Septuagint, that Exodus 33.8 passage has here the imperfect active indicative, third person plural of kata noeo, which means they kept on paying attention, staring, as it were, at Moses in fascination as Moises went on or went away until he entered into the tent. And that's, of course, the tent of meeting where he met face-to-face with Yahweh. So the people watched Moses with the eyes in their head until he entered into the tabernacle. And they kept paying careful attention. They kept concentrating as Moses went away until he entered into the tent. Now, we have the privilege to watch or see not Moses, but Jesus with the eyes in our heart. It's always Ephesians 1.18. Until, until he goes into the heavenly tabernacle. In other words, we see a cinematic vision of Jesus also entering into the tabernacle where he will go face to face with his father and function as archpriest and intercessor for us through the age. And we still see him, according to Hebrews 6.20, behind the curtain, behind the torn veil, as we learn later in Hebrews 10.20, which is the veil of his flesh. In Hebrews 6.20, we know that he's there beyond the curtain where he appears face to face with God on our behalf in Hebrews 9.24. 
he is there as a forerunner for us, which guarantees our presence there with him. Hebrews affords us a cinematic view of Jesus becoming blood and flesh, living a life of obedience to the Father that culminates in suffering and the experience of death for everyone. We see his being brought up from the dead by the God of peace, his passage through the heavens in 4.14, his entry into the heavenly holy of holies by the merits of his own blood, by which he secures eternal redemption in Hebrews 9.12. We see him sitting, enthroned, and crowned at the right side of the majesty in heaven. We see him appearing for us beyond the curtain where he has entered as our forerunner. And from there, we are waiting for him to come a second time, not to deal with sin. He's done that once. He's done that once and for all. Not to deal with sin, but to bring salvation. The salvation that he brings is the restoration of all things, as we know from Acts 3.19 to 21. And this is part of what it means when it says, we see Jesus. Here in Hebrews 3.1, kata noeo, therefore, signifies the intensified attentiveness and concentrated awareness that is called kavanah in the Hebrew language, which we studied in our communion service. Kata noeo is used in three reigns, or 1 Kings 3.21, where a woman appeared before Solomon in his judgment role, and two women were vying over the ownership of a baby or the possession of an infant. When the woman appeared before Solomon, she said, that she looked at her infant with care or took a closer look. Kata noeo is used for took a closer look or looked at her infant with care. Kata noeo is sometimes associated with amazement as in Psalm 119.18. I opened with a prayer regarding this verse which is Septuagint 118.18, unveil my eyes that I may consider amazing things from your law. And Habakkuk 3.2, again, kata noeo in association with amazement. The prophet says, I considered your works, Yahweh, and was amazed. In Acts 7.30-31, kata noeo in Stephen's speech is related to Moses and Moses' amazement at the sight of the burning thorn bush, which kept on burning with a fierce flame and was never consumed. Acts 7.30 to 31 says this, Acts 7.30b, the second part, on through verse 31. An angel appeared to Moses in the desert of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, as he was approaching to look more carefully, Katanoeo, the voice of the Lord came. So that angel that appeared to him was the angel of the Lord, which was also Yahweh. Katanoeo is akin to the idea, therefore, again, of Kavanah, K-A-V-A-N-A-H, 
which we studied in Abraham Heschel. It amounts to a direction of attentiveness to God that requires the redirection of the whole person. If we consider Jesus carefully and look with more care than we have before, the result will be our amazement, a sense of astonishment and wonder, and a desire to know him more fully. Paul saw him on the road to Damascus, but Paul also said that I may know him in Philippians 3.10, just before 3.11-14. This is particularly pertinent for the readers, hearers of this homily, who had been considering becoming defectors from the faith in order to assuage the pains of social shaming and social ostracism that they were enduring. And so this again becomes particularly pointed toward believers who are intending to depart from the living God with an evil heart of unbelief and to no longer hold fast to what we're going to see as the confession. For the fifth point, I'm going to do something I don't do very often. I'm going to reiterate a couple of paragraphs from increment 44 because I was foreseeing this verse or anticipating this verse all the way back in increment 44. So the next two paragraphs are the fifth point today. Here they are. The representational reality of Jesus' death is strongly supported in Hebrews 3.1, where the PT refers to Jesus as the apostle of our confession. Now, the apostle is never used for Jesus anywhere in the Bible, in the New Testament at all. As the apostle, Jesus is an emissary or an envoy sent by God on a divine rescue mission. And so this conjures up the doctrine of divine missions. There are two. The divine mission where the Father sends the Son. The divine mission where the Father and the Son send the Spirit. The ongoing mission of the Spirit is ongoing now. It's the Spirit who's energizing this exegesis and encouraging you, the listeners, and all of us together. Jesus, as the apostle, is therefore the envoy sent by God on a divine rescue mission. Jesus as apostle refers to his being the inclusive representative of all in his death. As archpriest, according to our confession, Jesus is representative of all in his exaltation to God's right hand. To be the priest of a people, one had to be one of the people whom he represents. Priest and people is a solidarity or a completion, a unity. But it's a unity which distinguishes Jesus as great high priest or archpriest from all others. Jesus alone and no other appeared once at the crossroads of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself, Hebrews 9.26. He alone has gone into heaven to appear for us in Hebrews 9.24, in priestly intercession to save us to the uttermost, Hebrews 7.25. That is, to the uttermost means to the point 
of our receiving a glorious bodily transfiguration or better transconfiguration as in Philippians 3.20. Jesus alone then is the divine and human Savior. We are the saved with the astonishingly precious privilege of partaking of the divine nature in him. 2 Peter 1.4 Though he alone is the Savior, Jesus, the eternal Son, is in perfect solidarity with all the saved, as one who has, was also saved from death, in Hebrews 5.7. But only after experiencing death, he was saved from death, but only after experiencing death for everyone, in Hebrews 2.9. And after defeating the one who had the power over death, that is, the slanderer, Hebrews 2.14, compared with John 12.31-32. Here's the main point, the fifth point summarized. As the apostle of our confession, Jesus suffered for us in fulfillment of divine mission one, after which he said, mission accomplished. As our great archpriest, he suffers with us, in an extension of that mission into divine mission two, that of the Holy Spirit into all the earth, John 16, 7 through 11, Revelation 5, 6. That's the fifth thing. Sixth thing in our exegesis. Sixth, the archpriest, which is thematic in Hebrews and in no other New Testament book, only in the New Testament book, called Hebrews or this holy homily is Jesus portrayed as archpriest. A point to be made here is that according to Rabbi Jason Sobel in a teaching he gave which was streamed live on October 6th, Jesus was born on the feast of Sukkot or tabernacles which was October 6th through 9th celebrated this year. It seems that we therefore recently had communion on the real Christmas, unbeknownst to me at the time. Moreover, Rabbi Jason Sobel, an excellent teacher in his own right, observed that immediately after Jesus was born, he was swaddled with strips of cloth that were, very likely, repurposed priestly garments. And so Jesus was clothed in a priestly garment at his birth. I was previously taught that these were strips of cloth that were like the embalming cloths in Egypt, but I think it's much better to understand that the strips with which Jesus was swaddled or wrapped was repurposed garments, high priestly garments. So there's a hint from God at the birth of Jesus that he was to be our great arch priest. These strips of repurposed priestly garments were also used to make the wicks in the candelabra that made up the menorah or the seven lampstands of Revelation. So it's very, some of these things are very interesting. If I wanted to, I guess I could spend a couple of years on the typology, expositional typology, and you'd be fascinated by thousands of little facts, and I wish we had time for that. But I recommend the teaching of Rabbi Jason Sobel on these matters, and I was very blessed to hear his teaching on that on Sukkot, 
which also ended with simcha, which is a call to rejoice. I did not know that when my last words on our communion service were rejoice in the Lord always. I was not aware that simcha or rejoice followed Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrates what? Jesus Christ, the eternal word, became flesh and tabernacled among us. So I hate to burst your bubble, but Christmas already happened. I hope you didn't miss it. So seventh thing, homologia is used here for confession, H-O-M-O-L-O-G-I-A. Homologia is a word for confession that's used in three critical places in Hebrews, here, 3.1, 4.14, and 10.23. And there's a kind of progression. Here it is what we confess or acknowledge to be reality. It is with regard to Jesus, our apostle and archpriest, that confession. In Hebrews 4.14, the readers, hearers, that's us, are urged to, quote, hold fast to the confession. And in Hebrews 10.23, it progresses to this, to hold fast to the confession without wavering. That means, or we could use that adverbially, which would say, hold fast to the confession unwaveringly. To waver is to vacillate or to exhibit irresolution or indecision. It's to become diverted from or unfocused on one's position on something. The Greek word, the adjective aklines, A-K-L-I-N, long E-S, you'll see it in print, is, means to waver or to vacillate. The warning in Hebrews 2.1 was against drifting away. In Hebrews 10.23, it's against wavering. Double-minded persons are unstable in all their ways. And that means as a Christian, if you're unstable in maintaining your confession of Jesus as ultimate reality, then you're unstable in everything else and in everything else you do. There is an extraordinary passage, and I want to move into this because this is another unexpected thing. I love the surprises that the Holy Spirit pulls on me in my study, and this was the kind of urge to turn to 1 Timothy on this subject, and I did. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11 to 14, I turned there and I was amazed to find out that confession or homologia is used along with the peculiar phrase, man of God, that we began with today, that we saw in connection with the prophecy of a faithful priest in a faithful house that God was to raise up. There are also other features of 1 Timothy 6, 11 to 14 that are amenable with Hebrew. So here it is, 1 Timothy 6, 11 to 14, and I did my own translation of it with some bracketed commentary. He says, Paul to Timothy, but you, O man of God, a very rare phrase in the New Testament, and I led off with it on purpose in the times it's used in the Old Testament, but you, O man of God. 
That means that the pastor teacher is supposed to be more than just an exegete of the scriptures. He's supposed to be a little like a prophet, a little like a seer, a little like someone who transfers what he sees to others. And we see Jesus. So, but you, O man of God, shun such things. The man of God is also given a gift of discernment. Not that he can see clearly what's in everybody's heart, but sometimes he has to see clearly what's in some people's hearts sometimes in order to protect the flock. But you, O man of God, shun such things. Such things here in the context is specifically the love of money and all of its attendant evils in 1 Timothy 6.10 compared with Hebrews 13.5. That's one of the big things that has tripped up and entrapped many, many communicators of the word, the love for money. Then, instead, he says, go after righteousness, true piety, fidelity, love, perseverance, and humility. And then I love this verse in verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faithfulness. The word agonizu, ton kelon agona, tes pistios. In the Greek, it's very powerful because we have the verb agonizu for agonize or fight. And we have the word agona for the arena of contention or struggle, the theater of war, as it were. And that word agona is also found in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, as we've seen before. But he says, fight the good fight of the faithfulness. That's how I would translate it. Then he says, grab hold of. And that word is epilambano, also a very important word in Hebrews 2.16, where it's used twice, epilambano, to grab hold of. He grabbed hold of the seed of Abraham in Hebrews 2.16. In Hebrews 8.9, he grabbed hold of the hand of Israel and took them through the wilderness. The aeonic life, grab hold of the aeonic life life, that is, the life of the coming age, to which you were called. Kaleo, related to the word klesis or calling in Hebrews 3.1, the heavenly calling. Kaleo, to which you were called. Notice it again. Grab hold of the, the aeonic life, which is the life of the coming age, to which you were called. Kaleo is related to klesis in Hebrews 3.1 and about which you confessed a good confession. Like he used agona in the verbal and noun form, now he uses confess in both the verbal and the noun form. You confessed a good confession. Homologesis tain kalein homologion. He said you confessed a good confession before many witnesses. The witnesses before whom Timothy made his good confession or the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ included the three witnesses called the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, angelic witnesses and many human witnesses in his case. Paul then says, I charge you before God, and you ought to take note of this if you're arguing with your friends about the extent of salvation. I charge you before God who gives life to all. He says, I charge you before God who gives life to 
all, tapanta, and Christ Jesus, who testified to Pontius Pilate the good confession. There it is now, good and confession put together. Colleen, beautiful confession, what we confess to be reality. And to carry out your commission spotlessly and blamelessly until the appearing, and the word here is epiphania, epiphania, where we get the word epiphany, which can be compared to apthesitai in Hebrews 2.9 and Hebrews 9.28. And so again, to carry out your commission spotlessly and blamelessly until you retire, wrong, until you're tired of your commission, wrong, until you're persecuted, wrong until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ so I think that makes it pretty clear eighth then and we'll this is the eighth and the final point I want to make on the exegesis of Hebrews 3 1 eighth is what I call Jesus times 10 Jesus alone just the name simply Jesus alone is deployed 10 times as the name of the Son in whom God has spoken with decisive finality in these last days. I've heard preachers say that we should never call the Lord Jesus Christ by that familiar name Jesus. I beg to differ. The homilist does it ten times, and when I think of the Son of God, I call him Jesus. And I think there's nothing wrong with calling him Jesus because his name is Jesus. Jesus is the last word God has spoken with finality, and every reality is in that name. And so Jesus alone is deployed ten times throughout Hebrews as the name of the Son in whom God has spoken with decisive finality in these last days. In fact, in my view, Jesus is the name that he inherited, which is a name above all names, including all the angelic names. And that is not what commentators say almost across the board, but it's what I'm saying. References to Jesus throughout the homily, and that's 2.9. The first introduction is in the phrase, we see Jesus. It's also here, 3.1. It's also in 3.3. So we see in 2.9, 3.1, and 3.3, the name Jesus is kind of clustered close together in three mentions. But then there's also the mention of Jesus alone in in Hebrews 6.20, and again in 7.22, and again in 10.19, and still again in 12.2, and 12.24, and again and again in 13.12 and 13.20. And therefore, Jesus is revealed to be the theme of Hebrews. What's the theme of Hebrews? Jesus. What's the theme of the four Gospels? Jesus. What's the theme of the New Testament? Jesus. What is reality? Jesus is reality. That's my confession of what ultimate reality is. So, the aim of Hebrews, the name Jesus is the theme of Hebrews. The aim is our focus on him. Our seeing of him, our considering Jesus, our looking away from all else to Jesus, 
are going outside the camp to bear Jesus' reproach, which means inevitably, if we hold Jesus to be ultimate reality, we will be under the reproach and the shaming of a culture like we have today that is extremely shaming of people. It's, it's, almost, it's, a, it's almost reached a pitch where the next step is persecution in severe persecution. The first three mentions of Jesus are clustered rather closely in Hebrews 2.9, 3.1, and 3.3, as I said. And so we're in a very filled passage of Scripture, filled with Jesus here. And two are especially close in Hebrews 3, in 3.1, where we are now, and 3.3. In between those two verses... The important motif of Jesus' faithfulness is taken up, having been first mentioned in Hebrews 2.17, where he is said to be a merciful and faithful archpriest. Jesus, the name, appears as the last word of the clause in the order of the Greek text. When you read the Greek text, Hebrews 3.1, the last word is Jesus, and he is the last word. He's the first and the last. That Jesus is the last word in that clause is no doubt for dramatic emphasis. Now, another place where Jesus is dramatically placed in the word order of the Greek text last is Romans 3.26. We recently saw this. In fact, Jesus is placed significantly at the very end of what I call the astounding pivot in Paul's argument in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Let me read the whole thing with my translation slightly expanded and that you will notice that the last word in the Greek text is Jesus at the end of this astonishing and amazing pivot of Paul's argument. Romans 3, 21 to 26, I'll read it right straight through. However, now, apart from the law, the saving righteousness of God has been manifested which is fully attested by the law and the prophets. That is, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Notice that. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ revealed to all who have been gifted with faith. For there is no distinction. It makes no difference whether one is a Jew or a Gentile. For all sin. All are under the power of sin and complicit with it and fall hopelessly short of the glory of God. And all are justified unconditionally by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as the expiation, propitiation, or the mercy seat, we could say, through the faithfulness, Jesus' faithfulness, that is, that climaxed with his blood or his sacrificial death. For the demonstration of God's righteousness, God, I say, who passed over the sins that were previously committed by his forbearing patience. Yes, I said, for a demonstration of God's saving righteousness and justice in the present time of crisis. 
And that's the juncture of two ages. To show that he, God, is perfectly just and the justifier of that one by means of his own faithfulness, namely, Jesus. Last word, Jesus. In 326, last word, Jesus in Hebrews 3.1. It's even possible that the PT has this passage in mind and uses the same device of using Jesus' name last for emphasis and dramatic emphasis. At the very least, the PT knows how to dramatically proclaim and pronounce the name Jesus by making his name appear as the last word in a clause or in a sentence. Hebrews 3.2, anticipating, and we're not going to do that this time, Hebrews 3.2 goes on to say, who was faithful, Jesus, who was faithful to God who appointed him, as also Moses was in all God's house. In the English language, we'd probably begin a new sentence here. He, that is Jesus, was faithful to God. That alone, that sentence alone, is a remarkable part of our confession. Remember, as we close, 1 Samuel, or 1 Reigns 2.35, is still holding court here. The PT is speaking of a faithful priest, and he's about to speak of the faithful priest's house. Like I said, 1 Samuel, 1 Reigns 2.35 is still holding court here. A man of God came to Eli and said to him, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest and everything that is in my heart he will do and I will make for him a faithful house. And he will go in the authority of my Christ all the days. So, Father, we thank you today that Hebrews is the lens through which you have allowed us to see Jesus in all these ways, in a way that we pray, that I pray today, will evoke the kind of amazement and marveling astonishment that lifts us from the despair of the human condition and sin. Help us to recognize that we are indeed partakers, partners together in a heavenly calling, a calling that beckons us toward the heavens where we have a high priest, an archpriest, making intercession for us. Grant us the assurance that is portrayed there in Hebrews that we are his house and that he will save us all the way to the point of our being transconfigured in a resurrection body like his own body of glory. Grant us this hope and grant us the inner strength to hold fast to this hope and to the confession of this hope. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.